0: Hi, I'm Tim Marlowe, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. You're listening to a podcast from our events programme, recorded live in the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Royal Academy. I'm Maurice Davis, Head of Collections. Um, this panel tonight... Um, talking about historical filmmaking, has been inspired by a current small display we've got in the collection gallery, which is at the other end of the first floor, where you came in and you'll be able to see it. It'll be open after the lecture. A little display about a legendary event in the history of the Royal Academy where there was a great spat, a semi-public spat between Turner and Constable. Um, And that spat is well represented in Mike Lee's film, Mr Turner, and later in the... um, event this evening will show you the clip that recreates that spat so you can see the spat recreated in the film you can go and see the paintings that are the real paintings that were the cause of the spat and actually you'll also see in the display the original account from the 19th century of the spat so i encourage you to do it um Turner and Constable had very, very different relationships with the Royal Academy. They were born within a year of each other and Turner was a real child prodigy. He was elected as a full royal academician at the age of 27 the youngest possible age and at that point constable had only just made it as a student into the royal academy schools and didn't become a royal academician until he was in his 50s so much later and in fact he was only a royal academician for less than a decade before he died because he died a lot younger than turner they had very different careers constable didn't have a huge amount of recognition in his lifetime although he was terribly popular in france constable but constable was such a stay-at-home person when he won um, a prize at the Paris Salon. He refused to go and collect it. A a constable always stayed close to home, whereas Turner travelled around. Um, I I wrote, to go alongside this show, this little book um, about Turner, Constable, and the Royal Academy. Copies on sale at all good bookshops in the foyer when you leave. Um, And the the main thing I discovered was that, uh, writing the book and looking at what they both said, is actually, I think, the main reason turner was successful in the royal academy was as well as being a a child prodigy he was very clubbable and the royal academy if nothing else and this is what you don't really see unless you are part of the academy like i'm lucky to be is more than anything else a club for artists and turner was very clubbable and very sociable Um, constable on the other hand was really quite obnoxious and um Turner didn't write very much, but he made a point of never talking about his fellow artists and never writing them. Constable's downfall is he wrote letters every day and was incredibly frank. And so you can really see his bitchiness and his unhappiness with everyone. Um, He described a fellow academician's masterwork as looking like an enormous cow turd, for example. And clearly Constable was going around... um, Being a bit socially awkward, but also just being really quite arrogant, I think. So, anyway, we're going to start tonight with a film clip that shows how clubbable Turner was um, and and what a sort of... uh, He's not really a cheeky cockney, but he's very at ease, really. He's gruff but charming and friendly, as you'll see. And he was sort of life and soul of the Academy, really. Someone once described him, um, when you sat next to him as dinner, as cracking lots of jokes you didn't understand. And I think that sort of sums him up. Um, So we'll show the clip of the film, and then the panel will come on and take the stage. And the panel is chaired by the writer, critic and broadcaster, Francine Stock. So enjoy the clip and enjoy the evening. Thank you. Mr. Turner.
1: Martin's Billy Gussie. Good day, delighted you, Billy. you could join us. Huh? Damn fine spectacle this year, Billy. Mm-hmm.
0: Aha!
1: Very mm. <laughs> fine day to you, Mr. Stunner! <laughs> 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 Mr.
0: Turner, sir! <laughs> mm. <clears throat> Constable. Turner.
1: Jonesy, e. Carlo, uh-huh. William, the Hanging Committee. you approve? It <laughs> is well up. <aren't>... Grazie. Prego.
0: Let <laughs> <laughs> everything be to your satisfaction, Mr.
1: Turner. It is indeed, Mr. President. There's a splendid cornucopia. Cornucopia? Oh.
0: Good morning, Turner. Good morning to you, Mr. Leslie. Robbie. Good morning, Mr. Turner. My other piece, where is it located? We placed it in the ante room. The ante room. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Carew! (laughs) Turner! Stanley. Mr. Turner, sir. Is it for his majesty? Indeed. I hope it meets his expectations.
2: It will. Grout. Mr. Turner. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, And welcome to this discussion. We have a most fantastic panel here who have worked together on um, both... Mr. Turner and Peter Liu. Um, and it's wonderful to have this opportunity to be able to discuss both sort of process and also the wider principles of making films on historical subjects. So, can I introduce immediately here on my left? We have Jacqueline Riding, the historian, um, who is also author of Peter Liu, the story of the Manchester Massacre. Um, Susie Davis, the production designer on both Mr. Turner and Peter Liu, and the director, Mike Lee. So, And we've just seen that clip from Mr. Turner, which so beautifully sets up his position in the artistic establishment in, in such an economical and beautiful way. I want to talk a bit about how, those, that, how film can create that kind of atmosphere. But first of all, can we just establish some sort of basic principles? Mike, you've made, obviously, Mr. Turner and Peter Peterloo, but two other films that could be described as also on historical subjects. Um, which is Topsy-Turvy, of the Gilbert and Sullivan era, and Vera Drake. And I wonder, when you set out, when you're thinking about these films to start with, is it a different process from tackling a contemporary topic?
1: Well, I'm not um, so much um, disposed... <coughs> excuse me. Sorry. am not so much disposed to um, j- just for the minute to talk about the um, question of process, but um, thank you, but, but more um, the principle and the approach and the reason. Um, uh, uh, as you may know, prior to making, prior to making topsy-turvy, um, I had only ever made contemporary films, and on the whole, films about what people call uh, ordinary people's lives and all of that. Um, and the, the, the main attraction and the main motivation, um, apart from the fact that I um, wanted to make a film uh, about what we do, we who go to Helen back and take very seriously the job of entertaining other people, Which is part of what Topsy Turvy was about, and apart from the fact that I actually found that find that period uh, interesting, and also apart from that, I actually like Gilbert and Sullivan's operas, which is a a detail, just as I like Turner. Um, The main thing in doing it was to say, well, having um, established uh, um, making these films, which are about, which look at. Characters in a real way, look at people in a real way that make, that where, where you actually see people not um, in, in a kind of idealized chocolate box way, such as uh, period mo- movies invariably do, but not always. Um, by looking at, I mean, you're looking at the people, these folk creating these. Uh, comic operas in the theater of the 1880s was actually looking at people doing a job of work, taking it very seriously, having their own conflicts, having their own but to look at them look at look at them with the texture and the detail in uh, uh, exactly the way that we 'd been making contemporary films um, and uh, bring that world to life in that way that was the sort of one of the um, motives for making the film. And of course, what we've done is exactly the same thing in the subsequent f- films um, that we three have made together, um, Mr. Turner and, and Peter Peterloo. Um, obviously, you mentioned Vera Drake. I mean, unlike Topsy Turvy and Mr. Turner and Peterloo, Vera Drake isn't actually based on actual Uh, specific historical characters. Of course, it is about a backstreet abortionist, and it's set in 1950. Um, It's very much about the the principle of what those lives were about. Um, But... So, in a way, the kind of... And it is about working-class life and so on. um, But but still, the same principle was uh, uh, important, that, you know, just because it's a period film, it doesn't mean that, you you know, you're not... that you can be let off the hook of making it real and exist in a three-dimensional way with all the, as it were, the warts and all that is what we are all about, we people.
2: So at what stage does the collaboration between the three of you, and of course many other people also start, but but are you there right from, you presumably are there right from the beginning. You also, Susie?
3: Yeah, I I come on probably a little bit after Jackie, um, when Mike's probably started rehearsing fully with with his actors and developing his story.
1: True, but in fact, of course, we knew we were going to make a film about, um, in both cases. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you were, as designer, I mean, I mean, we we got a language on the go, including with Jack, with Jackie, um, pretty early on, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, it, 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 in a way, there's nothing we might tell you about this that you would find particularly extraordinary. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, it's about research. It's about looking at stuff. It's about finding out about stuff. It's understanding stuff. And I mean, what I what um Jackie's very good at in helping me, is to sort out the wheat from the chaff, to, to distill the material so that we can, you know, I mean, uh, um, Peterloo, for example, uh, starts with the Battle of Waterloo in 1815 and it ends with the Peterloo massacre in 1819. So on paper, the film uh, spans four years. Now, there's no way when you're watching it, you think four years are going past. It's a great cheat. It's a, it's a sleight of hand, you know. We've distilled down and missed out a zillion things that happen in those four years um, so that we deal with the essence of, of the thing. And obviously, um, a, a proper, fully-fledged, fully-paid-up, grown-up historian like uh, Jackie, who, uh, whose main... Um, uh, characteristic is she leaves no stone unturned <laughs> and, um, you know, will tell you absolutely everything there is about it. You know, that's great. And then it's about distilling it and deciding, you know, what to miss, uh, leave in and what to miss out. I mean, with Mr. Turner, uh, again, um, the main decision was how, w- what stage of Turner's life to deal with, I mean Turner's whole life, and I'm sure lots of people here have read about, know about Turner. His whole life is interesting from the point when he was born uh, to a with a, a mad mother and a barber father in Covent Garden, etc. Um, but plainly, um, it, it, it wouldn't have made sense, or have been attractive, or indeed uh, viable, or malleable to do a complete biopic. So it's about making a decision about where to come in on it and where to, you know. So we came in when he's already very much a fully-formed grown-up and take him through to his death. Um, and that th- that liberates us and gives us a structure and know, leads us into what to look at and what not. I mean, we talked, we talked, mm. um, before ever we got to the stage of. Uh, that you referred to at the beginning of my being in rehearsal for six months with the actors and all of that. I mean, you had to, you had, you you knew all kinds of uh, um, pretty difficult tasks to perform. You know, you knew you had to not only. Um, produce a lot of paintings that look like paintings. But you had to, we had to make Turner look like he was painting paintings. We had to have, you, had to, you found somebody who's very good at painting Turners, who, who could paint Turners and half-finished Turners and three-quarter-finished Turners and all the rest of it. And you invented a brilliant way of um, coating um, print, printed, images with varnish to mm. make them look like oil paint. win all, all the
3: tricks away. All things,
1: they're, they're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, but we did a, so a lot of preparation, but a lot of research, really.
4: Well, the extraordinary set amongst many extraordinary sets for Mr. Turner was the RA itself, mm-hmm. um, which you've just seen the clip of. And I was amazed when we turned up to Wentworth Woodhouse in the Yorkshire countryside near Rotherham yeah. and walked into this mac- palace of a place. And then you walk into the great marble hall on the Piano Nobile, and you walked straight into the Royal Academy. You walked into the shell with, mm. with all the paintings all of this and stuff. And, and you'd created that room within another room, which was just magnificent.
3: Yeah, we, we had, obviously, you get to the stage when Mike's decided that he wants to have that as, as part of the film. so. I'll go off with the location manager. We'll look for a location we found Wentworth Woodhouse. um, And then it was a case of, right, can we do it in the time for the money sort of thing? We needed 300 paintings. How are we going to do that?
1: (laughs) Um, We, We assumed, did we not? It was interesting, I think. I don't know. But we assumed for a long while that that scene, the Royal Academy... Because you knew you'd have to build it. Yeah. Because the Royal Academy, you know, the, the mm-hmm. ceiling sloped inwards and was covered with paintings. and you, you know. So we assumed we were going to shoot it at Twickenham Studios. Mm. And we went to Twickenham Studios. And it was the right size for you to build that main room. Yeah. But I said, I've got to have adjacent staircase and adjacent anterooms and things. Mm. And there's no way we can do that yeah. the studio. So we immediately... And it's interesting because... Um, In my experience, we've hardly ever shot in a studio. In fact, I think I can say the only scene that I've ever shot in an actual film studio as such is the scene in Topsy Turvy where they visit the Japanese village, which we shot at um, Three Mill Studio in in, uh, Bow. Um, So we really are location filmmakers. And once you found Went With Woodhouse, which is a great rambling, uh, slightly spooky place in mm. uh, Sheffield. Mm. Um, y- 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 w- once we found it, that kind of liberated you to be able to create, yeah, and completely. the floor in there was really Well, it gave, us,
3: it gave us lots of free stuff, free architecture. So, um, <laughs> and we'll take that, you know, on the, on the sort of, especially on the, when you've got boundaries of budgets and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, but also the beauty was we found in our research Some of the invoices from the construction crews from the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition and they actually built scenery for the exhibition and we found the the sort of size and scale and it fitted exactly in the ballroom at Wentworth so things started falling into
1: place um,
4: that was at the Royal Academy archives the library archives yeah yeah yeah. we did a lot of Uh, research here the
1: Royal Academy here were incredibly helpful Mm -hmm. I mean the, the the library was thrown open um, as much as they wanted to all of the actors playing art. And all the, incidentally, all the actors who were playing artists are all actors who can paint. All of them. Uh, with the exception of Timothy Spall. Um,
0: <laughs> um,
1: and um, uh, we had a jolly good go at it, I have to say. Um, but, 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 um, uh, 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 the library was thrown open to people, but they could come and, and they, the research was fantastic because people found, you know, reference to their own artists and so on and so forth. It was, the, the, the academy here were incredibly supportive. And, right.
4: We turned yeah. up to one of the sessions with the actors, the 17 actors that were playing royal academicians or associates. And um, uh, Mark Pomeroy, the archivist, had got out all the information that, that the archive had on the various artists. So Turner—it started off with Turner at one end, with boxes piled up high like this—and it went down the line until it got to the far end. I can't remember which artist it was, but you opened up a little box file, and it says there's nothing on this artist. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so some of the art, some of the actors became because they obviously went off and borrowed in because they had. It was part of the process to do research and so on. And some of them became world experts on lesser-known Royal Academicians as a result of the work that they did on on Mr Turner.
1: And, of course, the same thing is true of Peter Liu, um, in the sense that people, you know, as I often say, I mean, this kind of stuff can only be done with very intelligent actors. And there are great numbers of intelligent actors. There are also a lot of profoundly stupid actors. In fact, some of them are really thick. And none of those are, in, none of those are ever in my films. Um, but the ones that are intelligent and are also character actors. So they really don't just play themselves in a narcissistic way. They are really good at doing characters. They really, on both films, um, uh, uh, Mr. Peter, they really, again, got stuck into the research and, you know, discovered... All sorts of things, which they brought to the table.
2: Yeah, because Peter—I mean—they are both so ambitious. Both of those films so ambitious in in different ways. And with Peterloo, you've got to create the whole of St. Peter's Field in Manchester. You've got (laughs) to—that was a thing. Yeah, well, it was looking
3: for free architecture again.
2: (laughs) Because so that's but you've. Especially when you're going to have sequences of that length, and you're, it's going to be such an important thing that has got everything's got to be right about it. And I imagine, particularly, you know, with Mike's method, the absolute authenticity really important. Yeah.
3: Well, and weirdly, that's, that sort of reflects what Mike just said. That is one set that we knew about way before the rehearsal process. That obviously was going to be one of our main stages, so to speak. So we we trolled around most of the UK looking for a Georgian square that we could take over mm. um, and we were in Yorkshire but then we'd have to close Starbucks and NatWest Bank. <laughs> we were in some private houses, country houses, see if we could take over a field with the backdrop of, a, of Georgian buildings um, and in the end we filmed it in East London in Tilbury Docks and which is a... Um, Tilbury Fort. Tilbury Fort, Fort. that's right. Were, it's an old um, historic England um, site and it had a certain amount of Georgian buildings, but crucially, it was enabled, us, enabled us to have it for, I think we must have had it for about four months, where we were able to build a load of extra streets, add things on, cover the floor so that we could have horses galloping around, and then Mike could have it for two months for rehearsing and filming. So we sort of took over. It was private, and it actually worked Sort of quite well. We had it all to ourselves, and it was a lovely summer. Mm-hmm. We had a, a sort of like a unit base around the back in the field. It was was quite idyllic for a while,
4: wasn't
1: it? Idyllic. Oh, Depending <laughs> <laughs> on your definition of yeah. idyllic, It started yeah. off that
4: way. <laughs> there was lots of feral horses wandering yeah. around the set, wasn't there? And wandering yeah. around where we were. That's yeah. pretty surreal. It was surreal. They'd come up to the window every now and again. But do
2: you get Jackie? Do you get involved in? I mean, in, do you have an opinion on? Locations and authenticity, and like yeah, we
4: had um, quite a lot of um, meetings and things, and I made some suggestions, and then just and then the we ignored them. It. <laughs> we ignored it, um, uh, yeah. Right. And then we had these, special, particularly with the House of Lords, we had quite a lot of group yeah. sessions on on the. It's
3: it's so useful to 18. have um, Jacqueline there as a phoner friend, you know. Would this work? Is, you know, could, this, could this happen?
1: It was, yeah. it's in, uh, Jacqueline, a historian is indispensable mm. right throughout the whole process. I mean, you know, um, when we got to the Peterloo Massacre, um, we had a lot of uh, different groups of film extras, you know, support artists. And um, every single time there was a new gang of people, Time was allocated for Jacqueline to go into the marquee with them and explain to them very, very clearly who they were, what was motivating them, what the issues were, et cetera, et cetera. So, what you get when you see the film are they really are behave- they're really in the situation, they're acting the situation. They're not just standing there like lumps of pot- sacks of potatoes, you know. And that was, but you can't, you have to have um, your expert. But the great thing is, you know, it's not only a question of what Jacqueline's got in her head. I mean, she able, was able to set up, I mean, for example, um, she organised, she obviously organised us coming here. But then on, a, on Peter Lu, oh, for, for Mr. Turner, on Peter Lu, um, you, you set up, did you not? Um, great uh, communication with the National Archive at Kew. Mm. one day we went down there with all the actors playing the magistrates and the, they, some of them were able to find their own characters letters from their own characters you oh, know
4: mm. yeah, but you have to have somebody papers, that,
1: that can get a, that get knows where to look and has the is an an academic and is practical and that's what Jacqueline and about.
4: if you don't know you know someone who will know yeah. that's the, that's the key to it because my background is also museums, galleries, historic buildings. I know curators and experts in various places. So, so, for example, with the Houses of Parliament, when we were doing the House of Lords, House of Lords Chamber, um, I used to work there for six years. So my ex-boss, my, well, he's now my ex-boss, but he was still there. And we were able to get hold of um, artwork for the Armada tapestries. So when you see the scene, the, one of the opening scenes within the House of Lords, with um, the Prime Minister Lord Liverpool stands up and congratulates Wellington, and then um, they vote through a a huge sum of money for the victory at Waterloo. In the background, you've got a sort of a scale, sort of a a version of the tapestry, the famous Armada tapestries that were in the House of Lords and went up in a puff of smoke in the Great Fire of 1834. So so it's those sort of little details. If you've worked in a variety of different places, you've got lots of friends and colleagues who work in these sorts of environments that can provide that kind of detail. going back to
1: Mr. Turner, um, one of the things that um, I mean, there's so much detail that comes out of the research in the first place. I mean, we understand we one understands that Turner had this unique revolving table oh. for the for, for his paints in his studio. Well. Once you've got that, you, you made the table, and yeah. there it was, you know. And, and uh, I mean, walking, in, uh, walking into Turner's house... Because, finally, you know, I, I don't go there till you tell me it's ready to go and look at. <laughs> and walking into Turner's studio was like like walking into the Royal Academy, it mm. was magic, you know, you think, wow, this, this is what we've been reading about, this is what we've seen pictures of, and here it is in the flesh. And it's, and of course, because of the way I work with actors to create that material, um, having done all the preparatory work of character work and research and improvising to get them up and running, to actually create the precise action in the film. What I do and what I've always done is that in a you go to the location with no crew there, just and you, and you bed into the location, and the actors um, get into improvising in the place in a real way, and then you through rehearsal in the location you structure the scene and write it through rehearsal and arrive at something precise. So that the crew can then join in and we then shoot it. So to walk into Turner's actual studio, there, with all its details, including the famous hole that he looked through the wall uh, into his, uh, uh, through, uh, into his um, gallery and all of that stuff there, it's just kind of it's what filmmaking is about, but it's also very, very magical. You know I'm used to um, I've made I-, I have shot action in more suburban houses than anybody in the history of the cinema. But, um, so I'm used to going into a real location. But to go into this uh, invented real location, which is just more real than anything, is immensely stimulating
2: although sometimes it must be a problem for you Susie that when you if you're working with with whether potentially there's so much detail and so much research there has to come a point where you go no we have to keep this sort of elemental to a degree otherwise it'll be too much for people
3: absolutely there comes a point in the research where you sort of put it on the back burner and you let it inform and inspire because we're making a cinematic dramatic piece we're not Making a, a documentary, so to speak, of Turner, so it was we absolutely try and be really authentic during the, the research and are very serious about honoring um, the, the, the scale, the history, and all, all of those sort of things, but there definitely comes a point where you go right park that what 's the story we have to tell, and then you bring the bits in so there 's certain ambiguities absolutely and Obviously, I'm making it today in 2012, sort of thing. So I'm using modern techniques, and that's part of the fun as well—the smoke and mirrors. To you know, half the frames in the Royal Academy are plastic, and half. You know, there's only seven styles where there'd be probably 300 (laughs) different styles, all bespoke. But we had to have lightweight ones. You know, and you get all the the restrictions from the location or the the financial restrictions. So you then start weaving in a bit of your research, a bit of, you know, what you can achieve in the time for the money and and hope it works?
1: Well, I mean, of course, it goes without saying that the same principle applies to the putting together of the action and the story. You know, in in the end, as Susie said, it's not a documentary and we are, you know, you create something idiosyncratic that lives in the moment. And, you know, as I've said many times, if we got into a time machine and we went back to... Turner's world, or we went back to the people who massacre, we would discover without any shadow of doubt that the world we'd created bore absolutely no resemblance <laughs> to the real thing, <laughs> uh, no, other than perhaps in some visual. Of course, of course. But, uh, but it's, it is about um, doing what Susie calls putting it behind you and saying, OK, we, we, we're now. Um, motivated, we're informed, we're, we're if you like, um, we're conditioned now to create freely something which, well, you know, we, we've, we've done the donkey work, we've got it in our DNA, so to speak, let's now freely create something which lives in the moment and isn't weighed down with being academic.
3: Mm. What's great with that as well is that all the members of the team will have done their own, so costume will have done the same research, mm. makeup. You know, whoever organises the horses, all those sort of things. So we have a, we're all at the same level, so the conversations and decisions can happen equally.
1: I mean, one of the things that, that's perhaps worth saying is that because we do, in any case with these films of mine, spend, one spends a good six months in full time preparation with the actors and all the rest of it. Uh, and these two films are no exception. Um, parallel to that, you've got everybody preparing production design, costume design, as Susie says, everybody. And we're all therefore communicating and sharing so that by the time we get to the shoot, we really have developed um, an ensemble of, f- a creative ensemble. Uh, and it is the case with many films that that just doesn't happen. I mean, you know, it's it's um, a very much a last minute thing, isn't it? And it's not there isn't that um, collective communication and preparation.
2: Yeah, because some productions they don't even know who their leading person is going to be until sure. two days beforehand. Or and just from it's an
1: actor's so... point of view, yeah. I mean, we haven't got Jacqueline Durran here, who's a brilliant, brilliant mm-hmm. costume designer who um, did both of these films. Uh, um, and, um, you know, on many a film, an actor will show up for a costume fitting um, with some sort of idea of the character they've read in a script, and the costume is going to say, well, you're going to wear this. And the actor will think, well, it's actually not what I had. it doesn't feel right, but anyway, that's that. And you, sometimes people are, on the first day, put into a costume that they haven't really, you know, they're uncomfortable with, and uh, uh, not to mention You know, uh, uh, actor A has, character A has been married to character B for 50 years and there's a relationship, but they've never actually, the actors have never met before, all that stuff. and without us, without our being too self-congratulatory or smug about it, though of course we are both of those. Things, <laughs> um, um, the, the, the truth is that it, this it gives us time to prepare not only the actors, not only but everyone together, so that they're really. And, and that includes, you know, involvement with the cinematographer, uh, Dick Pope, the sort of probably of my films since nineteen ninety, and you know, tests a shot which everyone's involved in and all the rest of it. So we really are on the same page before we start. And, you know, no one should make any mistake about it. When you start shooting a film, you, th- th- there's no question, if you are serious, you will feel as though on day one, as though you've never shot a film at all. It's very insecure making. I mean, one of the things that was profoundly obvious, but still we had to make the decision was that there was no way. I mean, there was some suggestion when it came to Peterloo, for some practical reasons that I actually can't even remember, that we, maybe we should shoot the massacre first. <laughs> it would have been crazy because by the time we got to that very elaborate and complicated thing, we'd spent um, considerable number of weeks shooting all the rest of the film and we were kind of warmed up. We were, you know, we were tuned in, we tuned up, so to speak. So um, having, this sort of ensemble on the go is a great bonus.
2: In terms of this, this is a question about historical films are our subject today. So, Jackie and Mike, I'd like you to, if you could, explain to me what you think the difference is. And we have narrative history as written by Jackie. And we have a film dealing with a particular event. I mean, let's let's say Peterloo, for example, because that's a... Are they trying to do different things completely, and if so, what?
1: Well, here's the interesting thing. I mean, we, we <laughs> made the film, and uh, after we made the film, our excellent producer, um, Georgina Lowe, suggested that it might be a good idea for Jackie felt like to produce a small book, which in some way would be around when the film was released. Um, Jackie set about doing this. The only thing is, she didn't produce a small book, she produced a very big book. <laughs> and, and, and it's a great book, um, and there are other books about um, Peterloo, which obviously we'd read, all of them, and talked to lots of experts and all the rest of it. Um, I would say that the film and the book are completely different things, because the book really is a very detailed historical uh, account. The film is not, in that sense, a detailed historical account at all. As we've already said, it isn't a documentary. I'm much more concerned, and indeed of necessity, must be concerned, to get to the essence of the thing, to um, get to the spirit of the thing, the the fundamental meaning of it, the the resonance uh, and the political... Um, in this particular case, the, the political... Um, uh, um, I don't know how to put it, the political currency of the thing. Um, so in that sense, plainly, there are two different things. I mean, if, you know, a, a book is a thing to be read as long as it takes you in, in the way that we read books. I mean, we're talking about a two-and-a-half-hour film, which does need to hold you and entertain you for two and a half hours, and is cinematic and etc, etc. So by definition, they cannot be the same thing. And such films as there are that attempt to be ponderously academic fail. Um, equally, though this is a slightly different matter, I would humbly suggest <coughs> that um, what we've done in both of these films and indeed in all three of the historical films that I've made, is to take very seriously how people talked, how people behaved, what people wore, what people did, what the places looked like. And never to say, oh, well, modern audiences can't take this, never to say, well, let's not have the women wear corsets because it's not sexy. Let's modernize the language, because people won't understand period language. So far as language is concerned, in both of these films, we've really got stuck into period language, uh, uh, including very, um, quite esoteric, Lancashire working class dialect of 200 years ago in Peterloo. Um, How Turner talked It was quite a difficult one. But we found, Jacqueline found, did you not, Mm. um, somebody had actually logged verbatim him talking. And so that was a wonderful sort of resource. And it
4: made no sense whatsoever.
1: (laughs) he was a very very convoluted... So um, I am pretty um, uh, disparaging about... Films, and there's a very famous one kicking around at the moment uh, called The Favourite, <laughs> um, that, that, that's kind of, in many ways, a sort of said, well, let's, we should modernise it, and it's not really... We don't, it doesn't want to be accurate, because that's not, you know, audiences won't accept that. I, don't, I think if you really go to town to say, let's be historically accurate in the, mo- in the detail that you actually experience, I think then the audience, you are giving the audience a chance to believe in it as people living and breathing in their world. I don't think to that.
2: Mm. Yeah. I suppose, Susie, with the, the, there are things, well, actually, the, that sequence, that clip we've just seen of Turner going into is that, obviously, without having to spell it out specifically. We, we see what kind of a person he is. We see how the others are reacting to him. We see how he's interacting with the environment. I mean, the environment itself can sometimes be, provide character as well, can't it? It mm. can provide...
1: Yeah, it always all, does. Yeah.
3: <clears throat> and particularly in in Mike's films, we're able to bring more character, I think, to the the design, because I get to speak to the actors beforehand. The, The actors are the script. So, for instance, I was able to talk to Tim about his, you know, his life, how he expected his character to live, you know. And I do this the same with all... We have what we call actor surgery where we'll chat about the characters. And I'll ask, if you needed a new kitchen table, where would you get it from? And their answer will help me inform the rest of quite a lot of their house so they might say you know I'll I'll get it from I'll get one made bespokely so you know start to know the sort of class or and how they speak about that someone will say what's a kitchen table someone else will say I'll get it from you know off off the, the guy down the road or you know I'll go and steal it and all those sort of answers you start building up layers and layers so the authenticity of their environments I think become much richer And enable us to create these worlds where you can go through the front door, up the stairs, all in all in one composite set, so that Mike can have it as a as a sort of whole
1: stage for the real place. A
3: real place,
1: yeah. I mean, uh, just as a detail of that, I mean, it's important to say that um, in consulting actors, talking, sharing with actors in that way. I mean, we're not talking about actors randomly. Uh, say I mean by the time that gets there, the actors have done all the research and the character work, I collaborated with me to do that, and then we communicate about it as well it 's very much a and then Jacqueline is always there for us to refer back to um, always in the hope that she 's not going to Give us four tons of printed material <laughs> to read by tomorrow morning. I try and summarise um, it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's that's our only fault. Actually.
4: <laughs> Too much information. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Well, I mean, there must be a point. I mean, do, do you know? Did they ever say back off? You know, there's a Too moment, much. isn't there, when we might as right,
4: stop research. <laughs> Everyone, stop. I think, particularly with Tim Spall, with Turner, as we know, Turner, there is so much information on Turner. The the shelves are groaning in the Royal Academy's library with all the books on Turner, and it just gets to the moment. Your brain is so full of everything, and you're so desperate to find more. At some point, you've just got to stop, and I think that's the case for for everybody, to an extent. Once you start working on the film, there's more research that's required anyway. So you have to, you keep going with the research because as things come up, I mean, when, we're, when the dialogues are starting to be rehearsed and, and improvised and then rehearsed and so on, um, you're there sort of um, doing research on language um, and it, with Peterloo, with the Lancastrian dialect language, so looking at um, encyclopedias from the 19th century where these fabulous vicars go off into the countryside because they've clearly got nothing better to do and interview locals in the villages where that village will have a particular word for something. And then they write it all down in these fabulous encyclopedias. And so we were using those during the course of the dialogue, when the dialogue was being sort of created. And also there's
1: political speeches. and
4: And the speeches that came direct from Hansard. So these scenes that are in the Parliament... Um, you actually have the original speeches, the hansard speeches.
1: But also the political speech people made at, at rallies yeah. and things. Yeah.
4: Even the, 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 the sort of the, the hotheads, as we call them, the, the um, working-class lads who are political speakers as well. Um, you get spies and informants who would turn up to those, um, to, to those meetings and then report back. So you have to be quite careful with that information because, obviously, these are anti-reform people listening in on, a, on a, mm-hmm. a speech and then reporting back to their masters, the magistrates, and so on. But it's all information that's kind of grist to the mill. It's a starting point to start working on the on yeah. language and people reporting in the newspapers. So, but but all that can happen on set while you're kind of developing the various um, scenes, but before there's a moment where you just stop reading that mass of information and just start to narrow it down.
1: When we, um, you just might find this interesting, but when we were preparing Mr. Turner at a very early stage, I mean, when we were really still at the stage of determining what we could do with the budget, um, I, up to that point, you'll both remember, I had said beyond any question, the film had, we had in the film, we had to see Turner in Venice because Turner's expeditions to Venice were profoundly important. The work was important, the whole experience of Venice was important. And of course, from a cinematic cinematic point of view, uh, it seemed to me absolutely essential. But also, the tension between this guy, this character, and Venice would seem... And I said, yeah, there's no way we can ever make this film if he doesn't go to Venice. And, well, I'm sure... Everybody in this room has been to Venice. I mean, if you walk across San Marco and you buy a coffee at Florian's, it'll cost you half your mortgage. I mean, and that's without taking a whole film crew there, taking over the whole of Venice, converting into early 19th century, getting the light where you want it, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was, I mean, you would have to have a a budget a hundred times the size of the budget that we actually had to make the whole film. And finally, the producer said, we have a, you have a choice. You either go to va- don't go to Venice or you don't make the film. You know? and, um, <laughs> so he doesn't go to Venice in the film, yes. so, <laughs> which is a great shame.
2: Do you think of it as a responsibility that, I mean, particularly with something like Peter Peterloo, that actually... Okay, we now have got the anniversary coming up and there is more being said around. There's your book, of course, now, and other books as well. But but this was something that actually was not that well known um, in this particular age. Do you feel a responsibility with any historical film based on real events? On? Well, that this may be the only entrance point that some people have to that.
1: Yes, uh, yeah. of course. Uh, I mean... Um, Inevitably, uh, 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 and, uh, uh, to not feel a sense of responsibility would in some way... Well, let me just... Uh, in a way, I, I'm a, perhaps disposed to answer that question uh, in a slightly different way. I mean, I, by instinct, as a natural thing, tendency, have a, this, feel a sense of responsibility, whatever the film a contemporary film that we're making up, you name it, Secrets and Lies, Naked, it doesn't make any, you know, you have a responsibility in the sense that you are being serious about this world that you are investigating and sharing with the audience. And, you know, um, it it, 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 it isn't that there isn't humour in the films, it isn't that they shouldn't be interesting and dynamic and all those, those things, but, you know, you are inviting the audience to, share something and to, to come in and understand and empathize, you know, with the world. And, you know, that has to be done without being pompous about it. That has to be done responsibly, i.e. responsible to what it's about. And to the fact that you are, you know, you're asking people to give up a couple of hours or so to, you know, share, etc. So it, 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 in exactly the same way, if you're saying, well, this happened in 1819, with all the implications that, you know, it, uh, it, of course, uh, that is a uh, responsibility at some level, and to be uh, and at the risk of being obvious, uh, uh, the thing of uh, we want to say, well, one is not responsible for that, then it would liberate you to to to, mm. to make a very random, arbitrary, and probably irrelevant film, really, and I don't think that's would make any sense, really?:
2: Do the subjects that you tackle, the history subjects were, do they have to have for you a contemporary resonance?
1: It's, it's a question with, with no, partic- no necessary answer, because any film that anybody makes can only be experienced now, whenever now is by the audience. And the audience can only understand the film, empathize with the film, decode the film, in terms of their own experience now in, this, in the modern world. So it can only have contemporary resonance. Um, in fact, if you said, well, could you make a film with no contemporary resonance? I don't know what that would be, because that is when you're going to see it, now. You know. So in a way, therefore, Francie, that sort of, it, it sort of looks after itself, really, I, I would say. I mean the fact, however, is that um, if you then happen to make a film about the Peterloo massacre um, and the flaunting of democracy, etc cetera, etc, cetera, and you happen to make uh, to make it it ha- happened to complete it at a time that coincides with the complete breakdown of um, uh, democratic good sense in these <laughs> islands um, and goodness knows what's happening while we're sitting here, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. um, then of course the resonance looks after itself really. <laughs> I mean, some people have said to me, is Peter Lew, did you have Brexit in mind when you made the film? Well, we started planning the film at the beginning of 2014. We had no idea that what was going to happen was going to happen really. No. So let's
2: move a bit towards one of the reasons why we're all here at the moment is that these two paintings, that the Constable and the Turner are being seen opposite one another um, in the the collection up here. This obviously is an important incident in Mr. Turner. Um, This spat, this argument, this disagreement, this sort of controversy at the time, is that is it absolutely settled what it was? Do we know?
4: Well, the event itself, the, the, what we like to call the red blob caper, um, occurred, is only mentioned in one anecdote, and it was only published after everybody concerned was dead. So you have to be quite, you have to deal with that as one would deal with that. I mean, in that, if you agree that the anecdote, if it did actually happen, um, what I found absolutely fascinating when we tried to, when we were having to recreate it and animate it and actually make sense of it, as an art historian, it did make me really challenge how the anecdote, as it's always been interpreted, um, certainly until recently, um, it really made me challenge that interpretation. The interpretation is is that when Turner puts the red spot onto the canvas and Constable says he has been here and fired a gun. Everyone's interpreted it as Constable accepting that Turner is the superior artist, and that in that simple process, that simple act of putting the red spot onto a reasonably monotone painting, he had blown out of the water, as it were, visually, the, the larger canvas, um, overwrought, to an extent, canvas by, um, by Constable. Um, when we were trying to, we were having to recreate it and to animate it and make sense of it, more to the point, um, that interpretation just doesn't work. Because in my opinion, and you can see it for yourself, the paintings are, they'll have degraded to an extent, inevitably from 200 years or whatever, since they were painted. But nonetheless, I think when you see them facing each other, I would defy you to think that the Helvetius by Turner, could in any visual sense blow the amazing canvas by Constable out of the water. So in the way, I completely agree with it, I would say this, completely agree with the interpretation from, from the movie point of view, because it makes it a visual joke that you see um, Constable sort of slip, slapping on the red, the vermilion tint, um, and Turner sort of stands behind him and grunts a bit and then walks off. Um, and then he comes back and puts... <laughs> the splot on the canvas, as, as a joke, you know, that you are using too much red on your canvas. It's a kind of... And it turns out, that in, rea- in, in, in reality, in, in, it's almost certain that Turner was doing this as an act of revenge, because the year before, in the great exhibiting, um, the great exhibition, <laughs> Turner had a painting hung in a prime spot, and Constable was in the hang was on the hanging committee and he removed it and put his own painting in Turner's <laughs> place, in the place of the Turner. And so I think Constable was just waiting for Turner to, to wreak his revenge on him, and it followed it did happen the following year. So that's how I interpret it and see it. And I've, since published on this with the Paul Mellon Centre, you can see my full explanation of my current thinking. But I, I, So I don't disagree with the anecdote as such, and we, I think we animated it brilliantly, and it absolutely works, I think. And in the seeing that and the process of doing that, I think you just have to rewrite art history and say that's why it happened, not the way that uh, art historians have, have tended to, to describe it. Or I mean,
1: I also think that Turner had a sense of humour and Constable didn't. Well, that um, is true. You know, that is true. <laughs> and that, in fact, you refer to that in your yeah, opening yeah. remarks. Yeah. Um, and say I mean, whichever el- whatever else you can say about it, I mean, Turner was definitely taking the piss. Um, I mean, that's what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, it was a gag in a way. And yeah. I think to in- try and interpret it um, I- in a broader or, or profounder way, other than Think the relation, what than the event in relation to what happened the previous year. Mm. I think is investing it with uh, more significance than it probably um, mm. deserves.
2: But Susie, I'd like your opinion on what you think the blob. The, I mean, you know, artistically, what does the blob do?
3: Uh, I'm, I'm on. I'm on Jackie's side. This is <laughs> yeah.
2: This absolutely. It
3: was. It was the combination of that red colour. You know, yeah. the, uh, Turner was obviously at the forefront of all the new colours, and I think he just got the next new colour there and was showing off. Yeah,
4: absolutely. <laughs> but there's a, the technical thing about the blob is that um, next door to the scene with the, the, the actual great room of the Royal Academy, there was a canvas with lots of red spots on it, Which because um, he, had, he had to get it just right, mm. twist it, and then pull it out. Because it has to be a really theatrical, quick gesture. He can't be faffing around with it and all that kind of thing. He has to kind of do it cleanly, walk away. But the other thing that you had to do was mix the paint so that it was had... We could wipe it off and do it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. again again. So it was mixed, the the, the vermilion was mixed with uh, washing up liquid, wasn't it? To thin it right out so you could, it still had the strength of colour, Mm. but then he could wipe it.
3: And I think the canvas all had a very thick... Varnish on it so that we could clean it off, and you couldn't see that we'd had a go. <laughs> but few I goes. think it was an artwork in its own right. <laughs> yeah little red splots yeah.
4: all over this thing, with the Tim Spall was doing this countless, and everyone had a go as well, didn't they? Everyone had a yeah, because it the, looks really easy. It looks great it's really yeah.
1: <laughs> We also had, um, uh, as well as um, uh, <clears throat> Jackie, as a, as a research um, our research leader, <laughs> genius. <yeah>. Um, <laughs> we had, a, there's a, a painter who taught Tim how to paint, and who in fact was there then, when it was anything that involved actual painting, and he was very good at being able to, you know, and so that um, canvas with lots of practice, red blobs on it in the other room, uh, was very much under his aegis. too. So Tim, Tim, Tim Wright.
2: Tim Wright, yeah. who
1: is a portrait painter.
2: Mm-hmm. So we are out of time now, but um, thank you to Jackie, to Susie, and to Mike, as well.
0: Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this recording, feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.